Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? All right, good. Man, it's great to be together here at the 11 o'clock service at Grace. Thanks for being here. If you're a guest, a very, very special welcome to you. Thanks for being with us. And uh, today we're continuing in a series we started now about three weeks ago. That's called Jesus Come and See. And if you are just joining us or just tuning in, basically what the series is, we said the series is kind of like an invitation. And it is an invitation to everybody, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, to come and see Jesus, to actually come and look at his teaching, to come and look at his life, to come and look at what he was all about. And that's kind of the journey that we're on uh, together. And, and the reason we said this, this series is so important, if you were with us the past couple of weeks, you might remember, we said the reason the series is so important is because uh, most of us, in fact, I would probably even venture to say all of us uh, that are here, that we all start our perception of Jesus. We all begin our perception of Jesus with what we called a hand-me-down version of Jesus. And what we meant by that was we said that all of us, our first interaction and understanding of Jesus is something that has been handed to us by somebody else. And so if you're a person that grew up in the church, chances are good that your understanding of Jesus first came as a hand-me-down from your parents, maybe. Uh, maybe it was a hand-me-down from a church experience that you had or from a grandparent or something like that. Or maybe you didn't grow up in the church. And even if that's the case, my guess is that your understanding of Jesus, your perception of Jesus was handed down to you. Uh, maybe from the media or maybe from a friend that you had or a coworker or someone that you knew uh, who maybe represented Jesus. And so we said all of us start there. All of us start our interaction with Jesus, our understanding of Jesus with a hand-me-down version. But in this series, what we're saying is we can't stay there, right? We can't stay there. And in fact, um, I said this last week. I said, I have found in my own experience as a pastor that most people that I have met, uh, most people who have rejected Jesus, they've actually rejected, if you actually dig down into it, they've rejected a hand-me-down version. And so you come to realize they've rejected the Jesus that their family propagated to them or their church experience that they had propagated to them, but they've never actually looked and come and saw Jesus for uh, themselves. And I also, I also found similarly in my experience that many people who follow Jesus, many of us who would say that we follow Jesus, if you actually drill down into it, we might be following a hand-me-down version of Jesus. And maybe we've never actually come and observed and looked for ourselves at the teaching and the life of Jesus. And so we said, there's a need. There is a need to come and to see, to look and investigate uh, with our own eyes the things that he said and the things that he uh, wrote and with the things that we, we kind of uh, know that he taught about. And so the way that we're doing this, by the way, is we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason that we're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, we said that the Gospel of Matthew is much more than just a book of the Bible. We said the Gospel of Matthew is actually one of the earliest first century historical eyewitness accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. And so Matthew was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was a disciple. He would have saw Jesus. He would have heard Jesus. And, the, and we, we find that he actually recorded those things for us in the gospel of Matthew. And so that's what we're looking at together. And we're observing Jesus' life and his teaching. And we're getting a chance to do that together in this, this journey. So if you missed any of the uh, previous week's conversations, um, I would encourage you, by the way, you can go back and listen to those on our podcast, our app, our website. All of those platforms are for free, and we'd highly encourage you to do that. But today, as we continue in this journey, I want to invite you, if you would, why don't you grab your Bibles, and we're going to turn together to Matthew chapter 4. Okay, so Matthew 4 is where we're going to be heading here today for, the, for our time. So we're going to kind of pick it up a little bit where we left off last week. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew. If you did not bring a Bible with you uh, here today, that's okay. We actually have some Bibles that should be available for you in the chairs underneath you. 
page 677 is where you're going to find those Bibles. So go ahead and grab those. Uh, or is where you're going to find Matthew chapter 4 in those Bibles. So go ahead and grab that. And then let me just also say that if you're a guest with us today, man, thanks so much for being here. And if you physically do not own a copy of the Bible, take one of ours, okay? We would love for you to have a Bible that you could call your own. So Matthew 4. Now, as you're finding that, I thought maybe a good way to kind of introduce the topic that we're going to be talking about and we're going to see here in this passage would be to kind of uh, play a little game. So I thought maybe we'd do a little trivia game, okay, a quick trivia game. And uh, basically, it's who said it, all right? So I'm going to show you a couple famous quotes, and I want you to try to guess what famous person you think said, said it. Sound, sound pretty easy? Okay, so here we go. Here's the first quote for your consideration. So who do you think said this? Nothing will benefit human health and increase the chances for survival of life on earth as much as the evolution to a vegetarian diet. Okay, so apparently this person thinks that we need to be vegetarians to increase life benefits. So who do you think said it? Do you think it was A, Albert Einstein? Okay, was it B, Stephen Hawking? Or was it C, Dave Thomas, the, founders, the founder of Wendy's, the hamburger franchise? Okay, so, so curiosity, how many would say A, Einstein said that. Let me think. Okay, a few. How many would say B, Stephen Hawking said that? Okay, good. And then how many would say Dave Thomas? Any, any takers? Okay, I don't <laughs> believe you guys. There's no lying in church. All right, so um, the answer, surprisingly, is actually Albert Einstein who said that. So, so yeah, Einstein, bet, bet you didn't know that. Einstein uh, was a vegetarian towards the end of his life. Okay, here, here's the next one. See if you can guess this one. Time spent with cats is never wasted. All right? <laughs> So who do you think said this quote, okay? No, no, was it A, Thomas Jefferson, B, the devil, Satan, okay, or C, Sigmund Freud, all right, so who do you think said it? Uh, so who thinks A, Thomas Jefferson, anybody, okay? Who thinks the devil said this, right? You are my people, I love you. And then who thinks Sigmund Freud said it? Okay, good. Yeah, the answer actually, contrary to popular belief, the Prince of Darkness did not utter these words. It was Sigmund Freud who said this. I'll give you one more. See if you can guess this one. Uh, I don't use blue. I don't like it. It bugs me out. I hate it. Okay, so who said that? Was it uh, A, Mother Teresa, B, Kanye West, or was it C, Johnny Manziel, former Browns quarterback Johnny Manziel. So who's going A, Mother Teresa? Anyone think? All right, no, no one's buying that. Who thinks Kanye said this? Okay. Who thinks Johnny Manziel said this? Okay, a few of us. That wouldn't be surprising, but the answer actually is indeed Kanye. Kanye West said this, right? Okay, so some of you are like, what is the point? That's kind of fun, but what's the point of, of all this? Well, here's the point that I'm, I'm trying to make. Okay, all these quotes that we're looking at here today are actually quotes that these people did in fact say. Right? These are things that they have said and have been recorded, and we know for a fact that they said these things. But as you can tell, these quotes are all pretty obscure quotes. Right? And what I mean by that is these quotes don't really do a good job fully representing uh, what that person's life and work was all about. So here's what I mean. Like if I was to come up to you and I was to say, hey, tell me about Albert Einstein, you wouldn't be like, oh, Einstein. Everyone's heard of Einstein. He was the guy who was a vegetarian and wanted us all to be vegetarians. Like, you wouldn't say that. Why? Because that would be a gross mi misrepresentation of his life and his work. 
What is the thing that Einstein is most known for? What is his, his life's work all about? What is his central teaching and message about? Quantum physics, relativity, that's what he's known for, right? If I was to ask you, hey, tell me about Sigmund Freud. What do you know about Sigmund Freud? You wouldn't be like, oh, everybody knows Sigmund Freud. He is most known for his love of cats. No one would say that. Why? Because, well, that would be a misrepresentation of his life's work and teaching. Sigmund Freud's greatest contribution was in the field of psychology. We all know that. If I was to ask you, tell me about Kanye West. Right? Tell me something about Kanye. You wouldn't be like, oh, everybody knows Kanye is all about anti-blue. That's what he's, that's his big campaign in life is he hates blue. Uh, we all know that's not what Kanye is all about. We all know what Kanye is all about. What is Kanye all about? Tell me. Kanye. Kanye loves Kanye. And we all know this about him, right? It's self-proclaimed from him. And so here's the point. It is possible to take a soundbite from any person and make that soundbite fully represent that person and to do so oftentimes is a big mistake. And yet, we do this all the time with Jesus. We do this all the time with Jesus. In fact, let me just show you uh, some very famous things that Jesus said. In fact, my guess is even if you're not a Bible person, you're not a church person, maybe you're not even a Jesus person, my guess is you know he said these things because he's so famous. So for example, Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. That is probably the most famous quote from Jesus in our culture by our culture today. And Jesus did in fact say that. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule, right? We have all heard this. Everybody knows that this is something that Jesus has said. How about this? Ask and it will be given to you. That's something Jesus said. That's a very famous quote, specifically among the religious community. It's quoted very, very often. Now, here's the thing. Jesus did, in fact, say every single one of these things. But what if I was to tell you today that these things that Jesus said, while they're very important, if not understood in view of Jesus' central message, can be very deeply misleading. If I told you that. Here's the question I want to consider with the rest of our time today. If I was to ask you, can you succinctly summarize for me, what was Jesus' teaching all about? What did Jesus preach? What, what was his message? What was the main thrust, the central theme of what Jesus taught about while he was here on this earth? How would you answer that question? It's an interesting question, right? Some of you would be like, well, you know, it's, it's easy. It's love. Or it's, you know, it's, uh, it's don't judge. Or it's, but what if I told you, man, what, what is the central thrust of his teaching? What if I told you this? What if I said that I believe that what we find, if you look in scripture, that when you actually look at what he said, when you actually come and see what Jesus said himself, that you will find that the central thrust of his teaching is quite honestly something that I think for many of us might surprise us. And it might be very different than what you have been handed down when you actually look and come and see for yourself what Jesus actually taught and what he actually said. And so what is Jesus' central message while he was here on earth? Well, that's what we're gonna see in Matthew chapter four. I believe we're gonna see it right here. And so let's take a look at this passage together. Now, we're gonna start in verse 12, but let me just give you a little context if you're just joining us. So last week, we looked at chapter three a little bit. At the end of chapter three, Jesus is baptized by a guy named John the Baptist. Immediately following his baptism, The Bible says that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. And we looked at that last week. We talked all about the temptation of Jesus. And so now Jesus emerges from the desert victorious. And the Bible's gonna tell us here, beginning in verse 12, that Jesus is now going to launch his ministry. Okay, so this is the beginning point of Jesus' ministry and teaching and preaching here on this earth for the next three years. This is the launching point. 
And I want you to notice what it says. So verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that's referring to John the Baptist, and we're gonna find out later in the Gospel of Matthew why he was in prison. When he found out that John was in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Okay, now watch this. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah. Okay, so now Matthew is going to quote from an Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It was written about 700 years previous to when Jesus uh, was born. And notice what it says. So he quotes from Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, now I really want you to catch this. Verse 17 is so crucial. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And now now before we look at the content of what Jesus began to preach, I need to explain something really important, and that's this. This term right here, from that time on, is a very significant term. Uh, In the Greek language, this phrase, it it actually means more than just at that time. It means, basically what it means is, from this point forward, uh, basically is saying, this is the starting point. In other words, the, the whole idea is henceforth, from this point forward, this is the message that Jesus came to preach. And so Matthew is about to give us a succinct summarization of everything that Jesus taught and everything Jesus preached. And what is the central message that Jesus came to proclaim? And here it is. Look at it. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew, right here, is giving us a summarization of of the central theme of everything that Jesus is going to preach and teach in his life here on earth. Some of you have different translations. It might say this. It might say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Or it might say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And basically, the idea of has come near or in your midst, it's not, Jesus is not saying the kingdom is going to come soon. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is near you. It is right here. It's in your midst. Like, it's actually come here now. That's what he's saying. And this, this right here, as as, as weird as that might sound to you, this is the central theme of everything that Jesus taught. In fact, I would even say this. Everything else that Jesus said that we quote cannot make sense without understanding it in the context of this statement right here, the kingdom of heaven. Everything Jesus taught. What, um, what quantum physics is to Einstein, what psychology is to Sigmund Freud, what Kanye is to Kanye, all right? The kingdom is to Jesus. Everything that he taught centers in on this one thing, this idea of his kingdom. Now, some of you, I know even as I'm saying that, that might be new for you, or you might be thinking, I don't know if I agree with, I don't know if I agree with that, man. And let me just say that if, if that's what you're thinking, let me, let me tell you a few things that I think you might find staggering. Here's the first thing. When you read through the Gospels, the first century accounts of Jesus' life, and you look at what he taught, do you know what the subject of every sermon and every parable that he gave is? It's in the context of the kingdom. He's explaining, this is what my kingdom is like. These are the ethics of my kingdom. This is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. This parable is to help illuminate something about my kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. Did you know in the Gospel of Matthew, the book that we're studying, 54 times 
Jesus is going to be talking about the kingdom. If you do the math on average, that's two times per chapter he's talking about the kingdom. I'll give you one real quick example. When you look at the parables of Jesus, the Bible tells us that they all are intended to illuminate one thing, his kingdom. Let me just show you real quick. This actually comes right from Matthew 13. Tell me if you notice the theme. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. Then he goes on to explain the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He goes on to explain the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's looking for fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. You see, sometimes I think we think that parables were intended to be like pithy little stories that tell us good morals about how we can make our lives better. That is not the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus were intended to illuminate something about his kingdom. How about this? Think about this for a moment. When Jesus taught us to pray, what did he teach us to pray? Now, some of you have been praying this your, your whole life, and you've probably never thought of this before. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What is it that you're praying for? When you're asking, did you really, man, thy kingdom come? How about this? In Matthew 6, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says it himself. Look at Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. And all I'm getting at, and I think I'm probably making the point, is that you can't understand Jesus apart from the centrality of his teaching of a kingdom. And so because of that, I think this forces us to ask two very important questions. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time considering. Two questions that this causes us to ask. The first thing is this. Okay, so if the kingdom is what Jesus' teaching is all about, then what is it? All right, what is it? What is the kingdom? How should I understand it if this is the thing that Jesus was, was, was mainly about teaching now, how am I to understand that? What is it? And then number two, what am I supposed to actually do about that? So how does that actually change my life? And how should I respond to this announcement of a kingdom? So let's just start with the first question. The first question, what is it? Now, obviously, because this is Jesus' central theme in his teaching, we could spend, I mean, so much time on this, which we won't. Um, but I do want to point you, if you're, if you're looking for some great resources on this topic, I do want to point you to one excellent resource that's out there. It is a, get this, it is a five-minute video. So it's very, very brief, but unbelievably helpful that comes from, uh, from the Bible Project guys. Anyone familiar with the Bible Project, out of curiosity, is really phenomenal. It's basically a group of theologians who take very complicated ideas in the Bible and break them down in very simple videos. It's a wonderful, wonderful tool. And uh, they actually created a video. It's called Heaven and Earth. It explains this concept of the kingdom very, very well. I would encourage you to watch it. In fact, on our app, if you go to the Grace Church app and you click on the notes for today's message, uh, you will find a link that we put that goes right to that video. So I'd encourage you to watch it, uh, preferably not right now, hopefully afterwards, uh, and that would, be, that would be a good thing. But let me try to briefly summarize for you what the kingdom is, okay? So I'm gonna borrow, you're gonna, if you watch the video, you're gonna see I'm borrowing a little bit from the Bible Project guys. But basically, here's a real helpful way to think of it. In the Bible, there are two spaces that are described all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. And those two spaces are heaven and earth. And the Bible is gonna use a lot of different terms to talk about these two spaces. So heaven is sometimes referred to as the kingdom of heaven. It's sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God. It's sometimes referred to as eternal life. Okay, that's heaven. 
And then there's earth, and earth is, you know, it's sometimes called earth, sometimes called the world, sometimes called uh, the kingdom of the world, this present age. There's a bunch of different ways that this is referred to. But probably the best way to think of these two spaces, biblically, is think of it as heaven is God's space, and earth is man's space. It's probably the best way to think of it. So heaven is God's space. And so when you read about heaven, the Bible is going to use all kinds of interesting metaphors and uh, analogies to explain what it's like, which quite frankly are very hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to fathom what God's space is like. The Bible is going to say things about heaven like it's holy, like it's eternal. It's going to use some imagery that's complicated and hard for us to understand. But that's God's space. Now, Earth, that's our space. That's easier for us to understand, obviously. And what do we know about Earth? Well, we know it's created by God. We also know that it's beautiful. However, it's broken. It's broken. That there's sin and there's death and there's disease and there's decay. And all of those things happen in our space. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, okay? So to think of these two spaces as two different places is actually not very helpful, and the reason is because the Bible tells us that there are times when these two spaces exist in the same space, when God's space and man's space are the same space, okay? So it's better not to think of these as two separate spaces as, or two different places, but to think of them as two different, and this is gonna sound so trippy, but almost like two different dimensions, okay, heaven and earth. In fact, the Bible is gonna tell us that these two things can exist in the same space, and there, in fact, can anyone think of a place in the Bible where God's space and man's space is the same space? Can anyone think of the first time that ever happens in the Bible? That's in Genesis. In Genesis, the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, right? And that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived with God in perfect harmony. In the Garden of Eden, uh, man's space and God's space was the same space. There was no sin, there was no death, there was no decay, the Bible says that in that space, man and God lived in a perfect harmony. There was no obstruction to their relationship with one another. They were able to freely communicate and understand each other. And that was the space that we were created to enjoy, right? And yet, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that what happened was Adam and Eve sinned against God. And when that happened, when Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says that God's space and man's space was separated, in fact, it's interesting. If you ever read Genesis chapter three, it uses a very fascinating word to talk about what happened. And the Bible says that God looked at Adam and Eve and he banished them from the garden. And so the Bible says that now God's space and man's space are separate. Now there's sin and death and disease in the world. And God, who cannot be in the presence of sin, now it's incompatible for these two spaces to be in the same place. And the only way that these two spaces can come together again is if there is an absolution of sin. It's if sin can be forgiven because that is the hindrance. Now listen, if you can get your mind around that, think about this. So Jesus comes on the scene and what is the primary message that he has come to declare? He says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is now in your midst. What is Jesus saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is basically proclaiming, I have come to start a movement, and I have come to usher in a kingdom, and I have come to restore things back to the way that they were originally intended to be, where God's space and man's space are the same space. I have come to usher in the kingdom. And what the Bible says is that what Jesus began, what Jesus came to begin, 
would eventually grow and would eventually grow and would eventually grow until eventually God will bring things back into the way that he originally designed. In fact, I want to show you what Revelation says. The very end of the Bible, Revelation says, the kingdom of, the world, of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This is how the Bible ends. We talk about this idea of us, you know, one day we're going to go to heaven. The Bible is so much more about heaven coming down to earth. You see this idea all throughout scripture. And so the end of all things is that there's going to be this, re- that these, these, these two things are going to come back together and God is going to restore things back to the way that they were. And so Jesus comes and he declares, I have come to bring a kingdom. This is the announcement that he came to bring. Here, here's another helpful, I think, way to think about the kingdom. I'll give you one other th- way to think about it. Uh, theologians talk about the importance, when you're thinking about the kingdom of heaven, to think of it more of a reign than a realm. If you want to understand the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's better to think of it as a reign than it is a realm. And here's what I mean by that. For some reason in Western society, when we hear the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we tend to think of a place, So we think of a castle, we think of a throne, this is where God lives, the boundaries of heaven. We think of a place that we're going to go after we die. And so if I die, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to, you know, somehow go up to a cloud, sit on a cloud and wear a diaper and play a harp and have wings that are too small to fly anywhere fun, right? That's what heaven is. Heaven's the place where all dogs go and cats are never allowed. And that's like, that's heaven, And we think of a place, we think of a realm, people are going to go to heaven. And I'll just tell you, the Bible does have some language that helps us understand it that way. But if you actually read through the Bible, you will find that it is much more interested in describing the kingdom as a reign of a person. It's far less about a place, and it's far more about a person. The kingdom of God is where God is king. The kingdom of God is where authority and allegiance of life is dedicated to a person. It's someone who lives underneath the leadership, the rule, and the reign of the king. And so listen, when Jesus comes and he says, I've come to bring a kingdom, what is he saying? Well, what he's saying is he's saying that I have come to usher in a kingdom, and Jesus thinks himself to be a king. And what does it mean then to be part of the kingdom? Well, it means to live like Jesus is the king. It means to live under the reign of a person, much less being part of a realm. In fact, I love what Jesus said. If you look at Luke 17, when Jesus was asked the question, where's the kingdom? He responded. He said, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. What is he saying? It's far less about a realm. It's much more about a reign of a king. It's people who live like Jesus is their king. And he says, I've come to bring this kingdom. Jesus is declaring that he has come to initiate an eternal movement in which he himself is the king. And to be part of the kingdom then means to declare Jesus Christ as the king of your life and to live underneath the reign and the rule of him and his kingdom. And so I know that's a lot, but if you can get your mind around that, that's what it is. That's what he's actually teaching. That's what he came to proclaim. And that leads to the second question, and that's this. Well, what am I supposed to do about that? So some of you might be thinking, well, that's kind of interesting, or I don't think I've ever thought about it like that. But okay, even if, it is, even if what you're saying is true, what am I actually supposed to do about it? How is it actually supposed to change my life today? And I think that Jesus is actually going to tell us, how should we respond? What should we do about it? If you look at verse 17, notice this. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so what is the logical response? Well, notice Jesus says it right here. Repent. 
He says, because of this announcement, because of this declaration that I have come to bring a kingdom, how should you respond? How should I respond? Here it is. Repent. Repent. Okay, now, now here's the problem, all right? This word right here, repent, unfortunately, has so much baggage in our society. This word, unfortunately, has been so tainted by, you know, red-faced, pulpit-pounding preachers who just keep, you know, repent, repent, and like, you know, uh, street-corner evangelists who are gloom and doom, condemnation, repent, repent. And, and I'm just telling you, this word comes with a lot of baggage. And here's what I want you to understand. In the first century, this word did not have the same religious baggage that it does today. It's a very normal word. It was a very average word. In fact, it was a very political word. You know what the word repent meant in the original Greek language? Here's what it meant. It comes from two words in the Greek. The first word means turn or it means change. And the second word means mind or perceive. And so what is repentance? Plain and simple. Here's what repentance is. Change the way that you're thinking. It means to shift your paradigm. It means to look at things totally different. It means to radically reorient your view of yourself and reality. And so what does Jesus say? He says, I've come to bring a kingdom. Therefore, what must you do? You gotta change. You gotta repent. You have to change your paradigm. You have to radically reorient your life around this new declaration of the kingdom. Now, I know that might sound kind of abstract and theoretical. So let me see if I can try to make it as practical as I know how to make it. Okay, so there was this, uh, there was this analogy that I used about four years ago. And uh, it has it proven to be so helpful to me. And uh, I've used it in the conversations with a lot of people since then. And so I thought I'd just share it again. So if you've already heard it, I'm sorry. If you, if you haven't, my hope is that it'll be helpful for you. But many of you know, you've read, back in the 1400s, uh, it was commonly accepted that, that the earth was the center of the universe. So a lot of people believe that. that, it was, uh, that people believe we were in a geocentric planetary system where the earth was in the middle and all the other planets in the sun revolved around us. And that was commonly accepted. That was commonly believed to be true. And some of you might remember back in those times, if you've read, astronomers would try to map out the, the, uh, the planetary systems. And so they would try to make these, you know, these, these maps of the orbits and how the planets, you know, the kind of paths of rotation that they would take around the Earth. And every time the astronomers would try to do this, it would be deeply frustrating to them because it seemed so chaotic and it seemed like nothing ever seemed to make sense. In fact, let me just show you this is actually a, uh, a, a diagram of a geocentric planetary system. So the Earth is in the center, and all these lines represent the different planets in, the, or, in the, the, the paths of orbit that they would take around the Earth. And so the astronomers would draw this out, and they would be deeply frustrated because everything was complicated. There was no logic behind why the planets took the path of rotation that they did. They were like, why would they do that? It doesn't seem like there's any reason behind that. Every planet looked like it was on a crash course collision with each other. So they were like, why haven't they smashed into each other? And it was confusing and it didn't make sense and it was chaotic and they were frustrated because it didn't really seem, they couldn't figure it out. And so you guys know the story, Copernicus comes along. Right? And so Copernicus comes, and as far as we know, he's the first one who proposed a solar-centric planetary system, a solar system, but the, not the Earth, but the sun is the center. And so Copernicus, Copernicus comes along, he says, what if the Earth isn't the center? What if it's the sun? So he draws it out. And you know what that looks like? It looks like this. And he's like, huh. That makes so much more sense. And he's like, we've been doing this all wrong. 
we've been doing this all wrong. And he says, geez, this is, this is totally different. And so he goes to his counterparts and he, and he presents this model to his contemporaries. And you guys know how they responded. Some of them wanted to burn him at the stake for this whole concept. But you know, you know what he would have done? You know what message he would have brought to his contemporaries? The message he would have brought, now I know he didn't say this, but this is the idea. He would have come to them and he would have said, you guys, you guys, I've got good news for you. I've got great news for you. And they would have been like, what? And they're like, you know how frustrated and complicated we make things and how nothing's working and everything? Yeah, yeah, I've got good news. What is it? Repent, repent. Change the way you think about everything. We need to radically reorient what we think is in the center of every, we, good news, good news. We are not the center of the universe, good news. The sun is the center of this planetary system and look at how easy everything begins to make sense and now all of a sudden they can start thinking about things like gravity and oh, there's a force that must be causing these things and everything comes online. Now, listen, if you can get your mind around that, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes and what's his statement? He says, repent. He says, I have good news for you. I've got great news. You know how you're all trying to figure out life? It's all super complicated and frustrating and, and you're confused and it causes anxiety and everything is on a crash course collision with everything else. He says, well, I've got really good news for you. You're not the center of the universe. Repent. And he says, there's a kingdom. And that means there's a king. And that means that everything in life will only make sense if you radically reorient yourself around this new reality. That there is a king who demands allegiance. There is a king who you were designed to orbit your life around. And it's only when you seek him that your life is really going to make sense. Do you know what the Bible says about our condition, about you and I as humans, our human condition? I love the Bible um, for a lot of reasons, but partly because it's so honest the Bible's so honest. And one of the ways it describes the human situation, you actually, you actually see it. Look back at verse 16 in Matthew chapter four. At, uh, the book of Isaiah, quotation from the book of Isaiah. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. This is how the Bible describes the human condition that you and I live in. We live in darkness. We live in darkness. If you read Isaiah eight and nine, it's all about the human situation, that all of us are confused, that we are groping in the dark like blind people in this life and we're trying to find significance and we're trying to find meaning and we're trying to find purpose and we're trying to figure it out and we're all groping around and we can't figure it out for the life of us. And all of us have this natural inclination, every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we all have this inclination to put something in the center of our life that we believe is gonna bring us joy and significance and meaning and purpose. We all do this. And so we live these lives where there's egocentric lives. We live lives that are family-centric lives. We put our family in the center. We believe that's what's gonna bring us purpose and meaning and significance. And everything else in our life orbits around that one main thing. We put pleasure in the center of our lives. We put sex in the center of our lives. We put work and money and career at the center of our lives because we believe that if we orient our lives around these things, it's gonna give us significance and purpose and meaning and Jesus comes and he says, good news. I've got good news. Repent. Because just like in a geocentric model, when you put the wrong thing in the center, everything else is chaotic and nothing makes sense. And so Jesus says, you've been looking at it all wrong. And if you want to find significance in meeting in this light, I have come to bring the light 
and that is that there is a kingdom. You were created to live this way, to orbit around Jesus, to orbit around God and the things of God, and that's the only way that life truly will make sense. And so Jesus' message to us is repent. And this is an invitation. This is so much less of a condemnation and it's so much more of an invitation. Jesus is inviting us out of the darkness. He's inviting us to the life that God intended from the very beginning. And he, he is inviting us to dethrone whatever it is that we make king in our lives, whatever it is that we make the center. And he is calling us to repent and radically reorient around him and the things of him. And what Jesus says is, is only when that happens that life will truly make sense. And if you wanna be part of my kingdom, it means that you make me king. And when you make me king, then you will bring God's plan into place and this kingdom will grow in these ways. Now, here's the thing, all right? If this is what Jesus really meant, if this is the central thrust of Jesus' teaching, I think it has incredible implications and has very serious considerations for all of us in this room. So let me just talk for a minute to those who maybe are investigating Jesus. So if you're a person in this room who doesn't follow Jesus, maybe you're investigating, you're trying to figure it out, maybe you're skeptical of the whole thing. If that's the case, let me just say this first because we say this all the time and I genuinely mean it. We count it an absolute honor and privilege that you would let us be part of your investigation. Now, you could do anything you want with your time and the fact that you've come and let us speak into that is a high honor and we don't take it lightly. But let me just be very frank with you. If you are a person investigating Jesus, I, I just wanna be straightforward with you about what Jesus actually taught. I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want to in any way, uh, I don't want in any way for you to walk away thinking that what Jesus taught was that we could just take some of the things that he said that we like and ignore some of the things that he said that we didn't like and just sprinkle the things that he said that we, he did, that we do like into our lives and just kind of use them as motivational things. Jesus never intended that. If you're actually gonna look at what Jesus taught, you have, to, you have to let him speak for himself. And what was the central thrust of his message? It was the kingdom. And so what Jesus is inviting you into is not, not, not that he's a supplement to your life. He's calling you into a radical reorientation of everything. Jesus didn't come, say, he didn't come and say, I got good news for everybody. I am a wonderful supplement to your life. You just add me in like vitamin C, it's great. That's not what he said. He said, I have good news. What? Repent. I'm king. And that, that requires a radical reorientation. Jesus will not make sense to you apart from that. And so I just want to be straightforward with you about that. Now, for those of us who do follow Jesus, I think this also has really, really big implications for us too. Because I think this forces us to ask this question, a very important question. And here's the question that it forces us to ask. If you follow Jesus, is he the center of your life? Like, like for real, is he? Is he the one that every other priority and every other, every other thing in your life orbits around? Uh, notice that the question I asked, by the way, I'm not asking the question, is Jesus important to you? That's a good question, but that's not the question I'm asking. Because if I asked, is Jesus important to you? My guess is some of you would say, well, sure, Jesus is important to me. He's a priority. He's in my solar system. He's a planet in my soul. He is, he is among other things that are important to me. So I have a lot of things that are important to me. Work is important to me, and, and you know, my family is important to me, and you know, CrossFit is important to me, or you know, yoga is important to me. My Netflix subscription is important to me. Like, these things are all important. And in there, too, is Jesus. Jesus is also important. He's a planet that is in my solar system. For some of you, Jesus is a very, very small planet in your solar system. He's like a dwarf planet. He's like Pluto, right? He's on the outskirts 
Oscars. And for some of you, he's a very big planet, but that's not the question. The question is, is he the center? Is he the one that all other priorities bend to? Does he have the most gravity in your life? Because that's what Jesus is calling us into. When you think about Jesus' invitation, what is Jesus' invitation to all of us? Follow me. Follow me. That's what Jesus says. Follow me. I think, unfortunately, sometimes in our society, we get it backwards. We think what it means to follow Jesus is that we invite him to follow us. Jesus, you follow me. You, you help me do the thing I'm trying to do. You bless me and you, you help my will be done. And I think Jesus would look and say, I, don't, I think you've misunderstood me because I've come to preach a kingdom and that means that I'm the king. And that means you must repent and radically reorient everything around me. It's what you were created for and life will never make sense and you will never experience the joy and significance and purpose that God has intended for you to experience apart from this. So good news. Good news, repent. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, I think, I think that we have to stop and we gotta ask the question, Jesus, are you truly the center? In fact, what I wanna do now is I wanna encourage the band to come up and as they do, we're gonna get a chance to worship and sing here in a moment. I would encourage you, just take a moment in light of this conversation. Would you just talk to God? Would you just use this space to maybe interact with him? And maybe for you, you need to ask the very bold question. You need to ask God, God, are you the center? Are you really it? And if not, then maybe you need to ask the question, what is? Would you, get, would you help me? Would you help me identify what is it that, that I am centering my life in, that everything else orbits around? And then maybe today you need to repent. And you need to radically reorient and shift everything for the sake of what God is calling us into. Right? And it's the, joy, it's the only pathway to joy. For those of us who follow Jesus, we naturally drift from this all the time. And so we have to keep with the fruit of repentance. Repentance is not a one-time act. It's a daily thing, coming back over and over again and reorienting ourselves around the reality as Jesus says it. So let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for uh, your words to us here this morning. Thank you for um, this, this message that you have given us of your kingdom. It truly is the centerpiece and it truly is the foundation of everything that you said. And apart from understanding what you came to declare, that you're a king who came to bring a kingdom, I don't think we can really understand a lot of what you said. And so help us to, uh, to come and see what you truly said and to take you at your word. You know, it's, it's so easy to make you say the things that we want you to say, to take sound bites from you and rip them out of context and apply them to our life immediately. But God, that's, uh, that's an irresponsible thing to do with any person. And it's an irresponsible thing to do with you. And so I pray that you'd help us to see you for what you really are and for what you really said. And it might be difficult for some of us, but I pray we grapple with it. We grapple with what you truly spoke. And uh, Father, for those of us who follow you, I pray that you would help us, God, just to, to see and to repurpose our lives around the things that matter to you. It's so easy, it's so easy to make life about so many other things and to drift away from the author of life who our lives were intended to be focused on. So I pray that in these next moments as we speak to you, that you would speak with us, meet with us here. I pray that your spirit would speak to us in these next moments and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.